0: Welcome to The Payroll Podcast, the show that explores the latest insights and innovations in the world of payroll. I'm Nick Day, founder of JGA Recruitment, a specialist global payroll search firm. I'm also a qualified executive coach and a recognized Reward 300 member. And my goal for this show is clear, is to bring you expert guests and payroll leaders who are driving this industry forward. From cutting-edge technologies and trends to compliance, analytics, automation, leadership strategies, and more, we're going to cover it all on this show to help you to deliver accurate and timely payrolls across your organizations. So let's join together in raising the strategic profile of payroll worldwide. Grab your coffee or your favorite beverage, and let's get started everybody, hello and welcome to today's June edition of Payroll Question Time. Now for those of you that don't know me, my name is Nick Day, I'm the host of the Payroll Podcast, I'm a Reward 300 member and of course I'm founder of JGA Recruitment, which is a specialist payroll recruitment company. I've been in this industry now for over 20 years, but believe it or not, I am still a relative infant in this world compared to my panel. So let me introduce you to the people we have today on the show, starting from my left to right, Richard George.
1: Yes, good afternoon, Richard George, Director of Education at the Payroll Centre. Um, again, the Ward 300. Um, we're going to say probably the same things today, between um, the people that are on today. Um, so as with my esteemed colleagues, um, I uh, sit also on a number of government panels um, and obviously run uh, the Payroll Centre in relation to training in the
0: industry. Fantastic. And moving from left to right, Simon Parsons.
2: Yeah, good afternoon, everyone. It's great to be with you again for another episode. Um, again, as Richard's just mentioned, I think we're probably all part of the Reward 300 that are on the panel today. In fact, that was only announced last week, was it, or the week before? It was yes. For 2023, so we're all uh, being uh, appointed again to Reward 300 on a number of HMRC uh, panels, uh, Bayes and DWP. Uh, and it's great to be with you uh, today. I look after the compliance strategies for works in the UK for our international knowledge centre.
0: Fantastic. I would say Simon's is also very much a uh, an encyclopedia encyclopedia of knowledge when it comes to payroll compliance. If you want to challenge him on any dates, histories, or particular numbers, I ask you all to do that because I love watching <laughs> his responses oh. and just testing him a little bit. So put it in a box and moving again. Last but, but not least, Sam O'Sullivan.
3: Hi, thanks Nick. Um, Yes, I'm Sam O'Sullivan and I'm the policy lead at the Chartered Institute of Payroll Professionals. So the policy team acts as our members voice um, and the wider payroll professionals voice. So please get in contact with us. Let us know what's going well, what's maybe not going so well. So we can um, use our contacts like my colleagues have said sit on a number of forums um, so we can really try and shape the future of the profession.
0: Fantastic. And if you are joining us for the first time today and you need support with anything in relation to payroll and perhaps you're not familiar with the CIPP, SD works, or even the Learn Centre, uh, the Payroll Centre, then do get in touch. We can put the links in the chat notes. Uh, we can You can find out more about all of our esteemed guests in more detail and about their services as well. I'm sure most of you are aware of who they are and what they do. But if you're not, do let me know and I can respond privately to give you the links that you need. Right. on to today's discussion topics. Today, we're going to be talking about reporting benefits and expenses deadlines the blended rate for class 1As, uh, EU law reform consultations and rolled up holiday pay, something that I remember discussing several years ago in the world of recruitment. So looking forward to talking about that again today. The HMRC digital by default framework, HR, payroll, pensions and finance, bridging the gap and responsibilities. That's a subject we wanted to cover last month, but we just had too much to get through. So we'll challenge that today. Uh, And if we get to it, we'll get some hot topics and a Q&A as well. Of course, we'll be fielding your questions at the same time. Before we get to those, there's a poll coming soon. Before we do, we're going to jump into reporting benefits and expenses deadlines. A little bit of a reminder for you all. So, uh, Simon, if you'd like to kick us off.
2: Uh, sure. So, yeah, this is your opportunity because the deadline is soon upon us. So, you need to get your P11Ds submitted uh, and uh, start preparing your p 11 db as well for later in the month and payments because uh, you've only got a few days left. So you've got approximately a week from today. Get your P11Ds done. So uh, are you having any d- difficulties or challenges or you want to know anything? Then I would probably say pop your question in the chat box and see what we can do. Uh, just remember, um, if you're payrolling, you still have to do your P11DB um, consideration there, although I'm probably covering a little bit of the next point we've got on there. but. Uh, But if you're needing something, your deadlines are coming up fairly soon. That's the 6th of July. So Sam, what are some of the things we need to consider?
3: So there was a change announced earlier in this calendar year, um, which removed the paper submission of P11Ds. Now, let's just be mindful. You can still give a paper P11D to employees, but you can no longer submit a paper P11D to HMRC. Now, I'm sure um, Simon and Richard will both agree with me. We weren't given much notice um, and it didn't go down very well. Um, but there are there are options for individuals to be able to report that. So you can either use your um, your payroll software or you can use the um, the PAYE online um, functionality that HMRC um, provide for free. Um, so that's one thing that you need. To really be mindful of, um, just make sure you're not sending paper P11Ds to HMRC. They will be rejected.
0: Fantastic. no more paper P11Ds. Richard, anything else we need to consider?
1: Yeah, I think funny uh, if we ran a webinar on it yesterday, uh, actually, um, as a good subject. And a lot of the questions actually were coming out about who should be getting it. Um, there's often quite a lot of confusion on the grounds of. What the reliance is on because it is obviously different to be six these, so really just a reminder, if an employee is still employed at the end of the tax year and still with the employer on the sixth of July, uh, then obviously the p eleven d has to be given to them. Um, obviously that can be as Sam quite rightly said, paper or electronic. Um, if the employee has left after the sixth of April but before the sixth of July, then a copy should be posted to their last loan details. Um, And if the employee left before the end of the tax year, then the only obligation of the employer is on request. So if the employee requests copy, then that should be given. um, But it's not a requirement. Um, And I'm I'm bringing that up, I say, because we had more questions on that yesterday with the 150 odd we had on than anything else. Um, There was also very interesting points about how they're being delivered. Um, principally, a lot of employers obviously are now including forms, uh, within the, um, electronic PASIC process, um, including P60s and quite commonly now P11Ds. Um, if that second group are included, um, e.g., the people who have left between the 6th of April and the, sorry, the 5th of April, uh, and the 6th of July, then what's their access? E.g., do they still have access to your solutions to actually get their copy uh, because again it can be something very easily overlooked thinking it's all right we've loaded it up to the platform but we only give 30 days access once the individual's left so again it's very important the right people are getting the right thing um, and really also again what the obligations are of that employer
0: fantastic and last but not least Simon if we are coming close to the deadline here and uh, anything else we need to just uh, remind ourselves of before the submission date
2: uh, I can't think of anything overly more. Nick, I think there's an element of just good luck to everybody. And if you do need help, uh, reach out for help because the deadline's soon.
0: Super. Well, we've got one little bit of help uh, being reached out upon here. So, first question that's come in, which says, if there is an amendment needed to appeal 11 d after submission, how should this be done? Sam, perhaps I can come to you for that.
3: Yeah. So, with um, with amendments, just One thing to be really mindful of, let's say, for example, um, you've got the company car wrong, but you also provide a loan. For example, you have to resubmit all benefit on the P11D and correct the one that's incorrect. Don't just resubmit your company car because HMRC will presume that actually there's no longer a loan. So everything needs to be reported on the p11d for that amendment um, but you also need to include um, everything that hasn't adjusted effectively Um, now we're into um, this electronic amendments and the electronic submissions hmrc have published um, a g form that you can um, complete for any adjustments if there is a company-wide Um, God forbid, a company-wide error or omission, for example, Um, HMRC currently will only allow for you to complete a G form for one individual at a time. They don't have the ability for you to make a bulk amendment. It's something that the employer and payroll group, um, which is a Um, A forum at HMRC is something that we are discussing, because with all the will in the world, people will make mistakes. Um, So they need to be aware that we will need that functionality to be able to do a bulk submission. Um, But at the moment, that is how that would work, Nick. So hopefully that helps.
0: Fantastic. I'm come to you, Richard, with another question, particularly because you delivered a course on this just yesterday. So uh, Jessica says, is there any actual guidance on how to do the P11DB online? I fudged my way through to date. And I've created my own notes. but Some advice would be helpful.
1: Well, other than the set guidance on the P11DB, I can't think of anything specific. unless An Simon is aware of anything else. So I'm not.
2: No, not specific. But I think this is going to be a common question and common concern. And I've seen a lot on social media. Uh, asking how do I do, especially when you've payrolled, trying to figure out, because when you go into the P11DB form, it tells you you have to populate the P11Ds, which is true if you've got class 1A on P11Ds, but you don't for benefiting, you go to the next section down, and there's an adjustment area, and you don't need to populate P11Ds for that. So the journey is a bit misleading, and I think that's the challenge people are facing, is uh, they know where to go. I found the P11DB on my PAY account. I'm now completing it. Oh, it's saying I've got to enter all the P11D information. Sort of skip that, go to the next. You just need the adjustment line. So uh, it is a little bit uh, clunky. I guess HMRC will probably take the view that well, it's so intuitive, isn't it? Everybody should just know. I've actually published a few responses on social media on how to complete the P11DB. Maybe it's one I'll publish on uh on my web my normal blog as well uh if it's such an issue although time is running out isn't it but uh you've got a little bit of time but it is fairly straightforward to be honest the Uh,
1: the secondary issue as well simon is the the substance of your software as to how you're actually collating Uh your 1as um e.g your class 1a national insurance if you're lucky you have a piece of software where you're feeding it into it um if you're payrolling and it's creating a non-showing non-paying item but it could be a completely manual process for some still that cruel of that figure yes. um so i think there's you know it's not as easy as it probably could be
2: well and there's a well, there's a challenge there as well isn't there richard because the class 1a uh liabilities combined, Uh, Result of the benefit. So, if you are using notional class 1A amounts in the solutions, your payroll engine, at individual benefit level, that's one aspect, but it's not actually the right value. So, it's good for accruing amounts, but it isn't actually for the submission. So, you need the total of all the benefits times the uh, percentage rate to apply it. I guess some of this covers a little bit, probably the next element in relation to don't forget the blended rate and you're quite right richard some solutions you may be dependent on that for doing your p11d's p11dbs and it's not offering the option of the mix and i know that um, some may say some of the p11d software uh, providers don't want to promote you benefiting so they probably don't make it easy for you to do the adjustment because they don't really want you to do it
1: I guess the, the other minor advantage, obviously, is the time scale on the class 1A is slightly longer. Um, so it is obviously by the 22nd. But,
2: uh, yeah. Yep. Well, yes, but you can, use the, you can use the HMRC form. It's simple, single, although I guess there's an element of, uh, to, to me, it's simple, Nick. But you know me, my brain works in kind of a, and, uh, well, you know, I think it's a good, for the a good layman time to it may it it. not be.
0: And to give a shout out to CIPP here as well, if you are a member, there's obviously yes. a help desk and support that it can give you uh, if you need support by being guided through those forms. And there's a really good resource place you can go. Um, but sample. what
2: might be interesting, sorry, is to understand the questioner's notes. Uh, actually, you know, if you want to feed them, I'm happy to build them into a blog.
0: Super, okay. Well, actually, we've got another question that, uh, which kind of links to that here. So I quite like this question. Are you or any of you part of a working group who can make the P11D process smarter? <sighs> if not why not let's create that
2: well we can answer the first part the second part is slightly more difficult uh I, i think for all three of us the answer is yes second part of the question is why can't we and that's because we can only feed in we can't make decisions and so decisions are made by others and sometimes they don't agree with the feedback given is that fair to say although, okay.
1: they do Absolutely ask, well. although I'm, I've am you know, I, got a £5 bet on why we haven't had the question yet, when are they making payrolling mandatory? So come on, people. <laughs> Only
2: a fiver, <laughs> Richard. Yeah.
0: Only a fiver. Next, next question, I'll come to you again, Sam, if I may. Um, regarding P11Ds, do we still need to print, sign and post the employer's declaration to HMRC?
3: No, no, that's been removed as well. So, you know, we're going to touch on this a little bit later on in regards to this digital by default framework and that might kind of (laughs) touch also upon where hmrc are trying to go maybe payrolling at some point become mandatory but when they remove the paper um, submissions the declaration would have gone alongside that it's all now electronic everything's electronic in regards to your reporting of benefits and expenses
0: so, a question here. Um, I had an issue with last year's P11Ds. As a company was bought out, all employees made levers and then re employed or moved over to a new PAYE. And P11Ds were issued from the new company as those payments were also taken over. Half of these employees were told in April they owed PMI, but when they call the HMRC, everyone gets a different answer or code change. It's becoming problematic as I seem to get no straight answers. More of an observation there rather than a uh, question and um, and similarly another one said I've tried the employer helpline but they wouldn't help and I've raised a letter HMRC but I've had no response still uh, actually there is a previous episode we've done here which is worth going back to you can find it on the paper podcast in audio and if, if you've subscribed in the past we have talked about working with the HMRC I'm not sure that's necessarily going to answer your question but there are ways of getting responses that you may want to go back to uh, on that but I wonder if, um, if people are struggling to get a response from HMRC and what is a particularly busy time any quick advice or, or or solutions we can we can provide to, to help these people out simon
2: well poten- potentially yes and i think sam and i will probably give the same answer richard may also i don't know but he'll answer but uh w- we do have means of um escalation i have got to be careful with what i say here um escalation is not first port of call does that make sense? So if you're really struggling, you can come, uh, for example, to Irene or the BCS PSG or CIPP. I imagine even the Payroll Centre under the old Payroll Alliance type view, um, uh, and or even SD Works if you're a client. We do have contacts that we can escalate through, but they will always say to us, "Have you tried the proper route first? Now. I get lots of people that try to not use the proper route first <laughs> and just want me to escalate. I can't. And that uses pixie dust. Yeah. But if you've hit a brick wall and you can evidence that to me, I think all of us can probably escalate that through probably very similar channels. And they, yeah. they will uh, pass it through because sometimes. A contact to an HMRC department from the bottom is not as effective as an HMRC contact from the top. Does that, if that sure. makes sense? Okay. But they will me. want us to not use the d- pixie dust without you actually doing what you're meant to do first. And failed.
3: Is that f- fair, How's Sam? It? Do you think? Yeah, absolutely yeah. fair. Yeah, I was, I was going to add to that as well. A lot of people, you know, uh, we can all kind of um, relate to this. You sit on the phone waiting for HMRC to pick up for two hours. You know, you're starving, you need another coffee. And a lot of people have said to me, call at 8, 8 a.m. in the morning. No one's on the phones at that point, as in what HMRC call their customers. They're not on the phones trying to get through. So there's some kind of more out of the box ideas that we could use as well. When they have the online chat functionality, turned on Um, that's actually not a bad route to go down you can also print out the whole of your chat so you've got an audit trail as well so maybe um run your chances see if you can um get a hot coffee and get your call answered within 15 minutes if you try 8am um or use the online chat functionality you might just get through
0: yeah, I think that's really, really good advice. And as uh, as what one uh, observer has written, is there ever a time the HMRC is not busy? That's the problem they've got. Uh, and interesting, Brian, followed up on your £5 bet here, Richard, with a comment um, saying, when are HMRC going to make payroll of benefits mandatory? You with know, a big smiley face. It's always going to happen, and there is no, no. answer. <laughs> but let's move it on then, I know some of this does relate, as we say, to the next part of the show anyway, which is in relation to Class 1A National Insurance, as Simon mentioned. Uh, a reminder that uh, that we're using blended rates. So, what do we need to? Well, maybe give us an overview first, Simon, um, and then we can consider what we need to consider.
2: Yeah, sure. Just go over my tab just to remind me what they are because we've moved on a year. But remember, we had three changes to the national insurance last year. We had a change in April, July, and November, and consequently, the class one A liability on benefits in kind is different. So before uh, you no, know, 22, 20, uh, 21, 22, or whatever, it was, uh, 13.8%. And for 23, 24, it's 13.8%. But that's next July, you no, know, not 2023, but 2024. This last year, we we're impacted by this, uh, all these funny changes we had three times. And, you know, we've had three prime ministers or whatever it feels like, or certainly three chancellors. Um, Uh, you've got a blended rate of 14.53% to use. Now, sometimes I see questions saying, oh, but they only had the benefit before November. They didn't have it after and others, well, they didn't get the benefit till the November. So don't we get that all at 13.8%? The assessment of class 1A is on the 5th of April, regardless for all benefits in kind. And so the rates for class 1A on benefits in kind is 14.53 percent now class 1a on termination payments is different and it's different calculation basis it might have the same label but it's actually different
1: yeah okay so i'd say the queries we get is is twofold um number one is the whole area pro rata um and we've seen that throughout the year that people still live in the world that they think you pro rata month to month to month based on the rate at that month, and as Simon quite rightly said, it is a payment at the 5th of April. Um, When it comes to the class 1A on terminations, the other area we're getting is when people are calculating it. Remember, it's when due, not when received is absolutely key uh, and critical because it may be due in, in October, but because of the compromise agreement, you don't make payment until the next month. When the rate could have changed, but it's when due, and the other area that people have i guess not possibly focused on is pay settlements agreements, which again will fall under the same blended rate um when that's considered for the class one b um situation so.
0: Well, I think I think we're going to get some more commentary here. So let's let's run a poll and find out from the audience um, who is aware of whether or not they're using blended rates. And we'll get we'll we'll ask to for the panel to comment on these results as we come in. There's the options here: um, Yes, I was aware independently. Yes, but the software prompted me and no, I hadn't heard. I can get everybody involved in that poll, that'd be absolutely fantastic. Over hundred of you uh, watching right now, so we should get a really strong response to this and, and, a, and a reliable survey result, which is really interesting. Uh, while we're waiting for that to come back, and we will comment on those results. I wanna just um, ask the panel a question. It's quite a deep question, but it came in in advance of today's show, which you're always welcome to do. Uh, and the question is this, has the panel in their careers experienced a change in view by an HMRC inspector to a previous judgment put in writing by another HMRC inspector. This happens in VAT, but would like to know if they have seen it in PAYE and National Minimum Wage Audits. If they have, does the employer have any opportunity to escalate a complaint to the change in judgment? I'll this now because we've just been talking about the HMRC, so I think it's probably relevant to bring it up here. Um Simon, I know you've seen this question in advance. Perhaps I can come to you first and just get your get your view.
2: Yeah, sure. So there's a couple of flavours in there, Nick. And so, as a dependency, so minimum wage is very different to PAYE, but uh, traditionally uh, an inspector can come in and change view and give it. But traditionally, the prior view stood to the point of them doing that. So, if you've made decisions or calculations on the prior basis view that you have in writing from the inspector, that usually stands and that is uh, the basis. However, from the day they say that's wrong, it needs to change, that new basis applies. That's the experience. Now, minimum wage is slightly different. Uh, they're not, we say they are both audited by HMRC, but they're not the same thing. One is about tax and one is about employment law that comes under uh, business uh, Department for Business and Trade, uh, formerly Bayes. And so they're the policing enforcer of another government department and they will go more to law. So and can be a bit retrospective, retrospective. generally uh, you think they would accept something that's in writing from the prior inspector. However, uh, can you escalate? In both cases you can. Uh, One of them may be by making a complaint uh, uh, or an appeal to uh, the HMRC themselves. The other, you'll probably find you'd have to go to court or or a tribunal uh, to have them overturn. In fact, there's a recent case in the case of, uh, I think it's Lees versus HMRC on NMW, where they were served an enforcement notice on a holiday scheme where the court has actually uh, reversed the enforcement notice that was placed upon them. So uh, interesting. Interesting. so, yep, you can take action, but there are differences in the various uh, flavours of um, stuff we're talking about today.
0: Nice. And Sam and Richard, I know you've also seen that question in advance. Any additional comments you'd
3: like to, to add to that question? Not from me. Thank you, Nick.
1: I guess the key for me. is kind of where Simon was. PAYE and National Minimum Wage are very different animals. Um, when it comes to National Minimum Wage, you must be compliant. Therefore, if there is a historic compliance issue that has been brought up in a further audit, which could be purely down to how the, I guess, the item or items have been viewed, then there would still be an issue of non-compliance in the past. Would you agree, Simon, on that one?
2: I, I would, yes. And and there's an element of thinking, although you may have something in writing, uh, that the latest auditor may think you hoodwink them. Or uh, or there's a more clarified position. Uh, so, yeah, but I mean, as you I, say, Richard yeah, NMW say, law is very different to PAYE.
1: I mean a good example could be a, a savings scheme, um, and how that has been shown as being structured previously, when actually it's not the case. Um, you know, it could be the fact that in the previous audit, the search didn't find a connection with, say, for instance, the the group who are holding the money, um, while the second one could. Um, And I'm not going to bring any particular cases, but a certain freezer company is one I will consider um, where, you know, the application of where the asset sits change through a different form of investigation. And therefore, it has always been wrong. So I think the national minimum wage one is definitely very different to PAYE, which I would suspect is probably far more down the line based on what you know at the time.
2: Yes. And as you brought up the certain uh, cold company, uh, that's where it might be good to look at the recent ET case in the case of Lees, because um, I don't think it changes the ultimate position. But the fact that the money was then repaid uh, was viewed as discharging the liability. Whereas I think the original fear was that uh, the employer would have to top up to minimum wage and give them their money back. I think in the Lees case, I think they convince the tribunal that by giving the money back the underpayment had now been met so all very interesting but they're all case what? by case so it goes back to our disclaimer Nick uh, you know they're oh. all different depending on different circumstances. sure
0: the, the lease how do we spell the lease Simon do you know I'll try
2: and put a link At in the L-E-E-S uh... I, I think it was earlier this month I'm trying to think when but uh and it was a uh, uh, employment tribunal okay, I think so, like, oh, right. But it's secure for the national minimum wage enforcement.
0: Well, let's bring it back then to blended rates. Let's have a look at some of these uh, results. Yes, I was independently aware independently. um Here we go. I'll, actually, I'll go back for those in audio only. So the question was, were you aware that we are using blended rates? Three answers here. We've got 63% said yes, I was aware independently. 14% said yes, but the software prompted me. And 24% said no, I hadn't heard. Sam, what if I can get some commentary from you on this one, please?
3: Well, I'm really glad that the majority were aware independently. Um, And I think really the answer around the software prompting you goes back to our previous conversation that don't just rely on the software because it depends how it's been made up. So that goes back to what Simon was discussing um, earlier Um, to the 24 percent that weren't aware. I'm so glad you're here because we've, uh, like you say, we've only got until next week to get those submitted. Yes, you've got a little bit longer, um, for your eleven, your P11DB payments. Um, but I'm really glad you're here because now you do know. (laughs) Absolutely, that's what this show's all about.
1: It really adds to the critical nature of keeping on top of what you're getting. So, the employer bulletin, for instance, of HMRC is so critical now. Um, I think to all payrollers. Um, because it was certainly incorporated and has been incorporated there. Um, The use of the likes of us, CIPP and others who are continually feeding you guys, um, whether it be news, blogs, webinars, whatever they may be. You know, we try to keep, as as does uh, Sam and her team, our membership and our sort of partners up to speed with these things. And it's just really key. And I think at the moment more than ever, um, and I think we're going to see that escalate as we get nearer the end of the year.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Richard. Okay, super. Well, let's uh, let's bring it back then to the slides if we can for a moment. We're going to talk now about the retained EU employment law reforms. Remember, if you've got any further questions in any of the subjects we're talking about today, or indeed if it's something completely separate. It relates to payroll and I need some help, please do put it in the questions box and uh, we'll welcome all questions and our panel will do our best to answer them in real time. Uh, so today, so retained EU employment law reforms, uh, there is consultation seeking views on reforms to the working time regulations, holiday pay and the transfer of undertakings, uh, the protection of employment regulations, or known as 2P as well. Um, Richard, I wonder if you can kick us off and give us a bit of an update please. Okay, uh, well so I give the bigger picture? Um, for the
1: bigger those who don't know, picture. obviously we are coming in well we're now halfway through the final transition year from brexit um it seems a long time ago uh, but it's uh, three years once we get to december this year um the initial um, i guess exit plan um incorporated keeping legislation um that we had within europe um at a point um under well really retained law um, just understand some kind of scale Um, Within the UK, I believe at the moment, it's around 4,000 laws and guidances um, actually take priority and precedence in the UK. Um, All of those, therefore, have to be reviewed um, over the coming six months to possibly further, depending on the the ruling placed. um, But they need to either be retained, uh, which would mean moving them into secondary legislation, Revoked, um, which is probably the latter or the lesser of, you getting rid of altogether, or actually adjusted and changed. So there is certainly areas that the government impointed um at the start of this retention and revocation, um, such as 2P, um, and certain areas within the working time regulation, which don't fit as well as they possibly might for the UK population and working force. So principally where we are now is that they are now consulting on some key elements within the regulations that we have. Um has always been very high priority here um, and then possibly other areas, too, uh, depending on where they go forward this year. I guess one of the other key aspects is there was obviously the delay um, or has been a delay through May um, in relation to the, uh, the act, which was due now um, or should have been due by now. Um, to actually start the move forward. And I guess part of that has been the level of consultation
0: required. Okay, great big picture overview there. Um, Simon, anything you'd like to add? Uh,
2: Only probably a little bit, um, Nick, uh, to say that uh, this has implications potentially on some of the proposals uh, focusing on the complexities of holiday pay, uh, which I think will uh, probably come some of the parts which is supporting George uh, Richard sorry uh, in there so yeah interesting times Uh, changes are afoot.
0: Yeah and actually we had a really interesting comment just linking back to our last conversation piece and Sam gave some really good advice about when you can contact HMRC in the mornings and using the chat. Um, Jeanette's mentioned to remind the audience that they're also apparently open on Saturday mornings. Uh, I don't know if that's accurate, but if it is, then that's also another prime time. If you want to give up your Saturday mornings uh, to contact the HMRC, maybe that's a time when hopefully you would think things might be slightly quieter.
2: We know how to have fun, Nick.
0: There you go. Payroll comes first. That's why we're here dedicated dedicated payroll comes first excellent well we've got another poll so let's get everyone involved again um and this actually relates to holiday pay uh, we talked rolled up holiday pay is something even i'm aware of in the world of recruitment uh will rolled up holiday pay make your life easier three simple responses for you here simply yes no or you are not sure yet so do put your in there. we'll talk through those results as they come in uh, any more questions please do put them in the questions box and we've caught most of them up to date Um, There is a particular HMRC escalation request here as well, where apparently every channel has been followed um, panel, so I will share the details of that individual with you three later on and if you can help that would be greatly appreciated. Um, And then we're going to dive back in after this poll into the HMRC Tax Administration Framework Consultation, where we are going to be talking about, as Sam mentioned earlier on today, uh, the modernization of income tax services and digital by default. Uh, But let's have a look at some of these poll results. Hopefully it's a pretty simple question so we can get those results in nice and quickly. Uh, I'm going to come to you this time, Richard, if you can have a look at these results. um, We've got 20 percent said yes, it would make their life easier. Eight percent said no. And 71 percent said not sure yet. That's quite interesting. uh, I
1: I would strongly suggest that's because everybody's got so much to do. This is very early and people really haven't thought about it particularly. Um, I guess it's going to be relative as well to very different industries as to the requirement or the need. Um, f- people may say, well, actually, what is it? Um, so we are going back to a uh, an older world where where what we're talking about with Rolled Up Holiday is actually allowing payment of holiday either before or after, when, rather than it being linked directly to holiday taken um it was actually made unlawful uh it was the robinson steel case um way way back i can't remember the exact date of it, 2006. In my head. uh yeah. yeah there we go um so <laughs> thanks for that one uh, versus P, versus pd retail services so i remember that bet if nothing else um so principally it made the whole process um of rolling holiday up uh within the uh, statutory holidays um the regulation 13 uh unlawful um and therefore holiday had to be calculated and used and paid um rather than rolled up into the payroll itself so there were industries where obviously this could be uh positive um when you think about the actual fluctuation of hours the fluctuation of um possible contractual time spent with the business to rather than go through the, I guess, the manual process of actually calculating variably paid holiday to actually have a form of rolling up what they're due at a point in time and paying it to them, I guess. So I can see the value to sell. Um, I mean, uh, of course,
0: some some of the challenges came from from recruiters, of course, which there are many, of course, doing temps and contracts where there would be uh, advertising hourly rates that were not actually accurate because they would be inclusive of that rolled-up holiday pay back in the day. And you'd have people uh, very upset when they realized that uh, that had been inclusive of the holiday and hadn't been communicated. I think a lot of this is down to accurate communication. And if we are going to be doing it again, then there's an absolute responsibility on the recruitment agencies to get involved in temp work to be very, very strong in their areas of communication as it is for the employers as well. Interestingly, Emmys put a comment in the box here to say, did anyone on the panel actually think that average holiday pay was a good idea in the first place? Or did it even make sense? Uh, Simon,
2: what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> um, it, it could make sense, but it's not written in a way that makes sense for anything, uh, <laughs> and and that's how I've responded to the consultation because this announcement on rolled up holiday goes a little bit with the consultation that was announced a few weeks before, and I think the not sure yet response is where I'd have gone as well because the consultation uh wasn't really about rolled up holiday pay it was about a means of in, of getting entitlement so it didn't really reveal what the entitlement payment was so we may have ended up with the same but the challenge with uh, uh well o- obviously the parliament thought it was a good idea when they passed it on 6th of april 2020 on the revision don't know why it's absolutely uh balmy to an extent but uh, it doesn't work for any frequency other than monthly. Uh, sorry, weekly, forget that. It doesn't work for any frequency other than weekly, which is something I've pointed out in the consultations uh, to the DBT. Uh, and equally, if it's weekly, uh, you have to be paying on time. So it doesn't work with arrears either. And I think that's the important thing is actually for i'd say 99 percent of employers the application of average holiday pay strictly in the confines of the law is actually impossible now if you're allowed it just to include payments it is possible but uh i i think this is the problem the government are in a conundrum of what to do
0: interesting well let's jump back into the slides i'm going to come back to you sam if you can because you mentioned this earlier on in the show uh we're going to talk a little bit about the um the HMRC Tax Administration Framework Consultation, Modernising and Simplifying Income Taxes, and as you mentioned, the Digital by Default. bring us the audience up to speed with what this is all about and what we hope to expect from it really, what the consensus is.
3: Yeah, sure. So essentially the consultation set out the government's plans to modernise the income tax services. So it focused on pay as you earn and income tax self-assessment tax regimes. Um, what they're trying to do is provide a more modern and efficient income tax service and it focuses on supporting a more digital way of working um, one thing they didn't define was what digitally excluded means well that's kind of key um, so in our consultation we did ask that there is a very firm definition as to what digitally excluded means does that just mean I don't want to. Or does it mean I am, you know, physically impaired and unable to? So we need some steer there. Um, Ultimately, what they want to be able to do is free up the phone lines. Let's face it. No one can get through because everyone's having difficulty. So they call HMRC. They want taxpayers to quickly and easily self-serve ultimately. they said that it's in line with their charter commitment of making things easy Um, it also brings me on to tax simplification and whether that should now be included in the hmrc charter as they've now taken tax simplification under their wing Um so really in a nutshell nick they're trying to make everything digital they're trying to streamline things and they want it to be Easy for their customers to self-serve. Um, some of the questions they asked um, weren't really um, well received. When me and my team opened it up, they um, they asked for people to give examples or ideas of what we could do if we got rid of a tax code. Well, tax codes work perfectly well because employers receive them, and we. Operate them when we're told. We feel at the CIPP that HMRC need to amend some of their internal processes. Doesn't necessarily need a complete re, um, you know, redesign. The tax code works, but better two-way communication from employee, employer, and HMRC would essentially fix these issues. Um, so that's a starter for six. And I'm sure Richard and Simon will have more to add on their thoughts.
0: Well, Brian Spine's already, already commented and said that, well, they still won't get rid of P45. Funny enough, wish.
1: HMRC came to our conference week before last uh, and yeah. did discuss the fact that it's now on the cards.
3: So ooh, ooh. there yeah, you yeah.
1: go. They wouldn't give a date oh, yeah. or a process, but it is now in focus the whole area of the removal.
0: From an outsider looking in, and I'll put my hands up for this bit, this makes sense to me that we're going to try and make it digital by default. We're moving with the times, modern world of work, keeping it digital and, you know, improving the environment, reducing the paper trails. Hopefully this is a good thing, right? But I'd love to get your take. Uh, Let's start with you, Richard. You've always got a good view on on the way these things are done. What's your perspective?
1: Yeah, I I think it's it's so... um, it depends what plateau you sit you know for a large business where they have moved significantly in every area you know it could be accounts payable it could be purchase ledger it could be anything where that removal of paper and the ESG platform uh, so obviously environment platform that the company's working to it's certainly a bigger focus um i think where you have a smaller employer with less administration um less technology um it, it's obviously a very different world you look at making making touch digital as a prime example for the self-employed you know how far behind is that to everybody else because it it's having the the people that i mean the i guess the mentality the solutions the ability to actually do it varies so significantly from company to company um yeah and I think that that's always going to be the challenge it's be like anything if you introduce if you introduce e slips for your 8000 staff there'll be 500 people who just won't um, and you will end up having to coax them manually into it show them how to use their mobile phones whatever it may be so there is always going to be a group or groups at every level where this will be challenged it's just education it's setting the right standard for Um, employers it's simplifying process Um, you know it's all well and good but you know if the process is so convoluted so broken so you know um, extended in what different things can happen then it will therefore create even more roadblocks so I think there's work Mm -hmm. afoot prior to anything
3: have you ever asked yourself how can I recruit payroll staff effectively Please don't give up on your recruitment project just yet. Here at JGA Payroll Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting, and retaining top payroll talent. We also understand just how costly a poor payroll hire can be. JGA Recruitment are a niche payroll recruitment agency who will partner with you to resource payroll candidates who will improve both the accuracy and efficiency of your payroll department. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit JGARecruitment.com to find out more. And Simon,
0: being a member of Irene, I'm sure, and I'm sure you're probably involved in this as well. Obviously, conclude on the seventh of June. What's your view?
2: uh yes it's difficult to know sometimes where to start and there have been some subsequent consultation meetings with various groups which are all linked with this the problem i mean from irene and the bcspsg which i chair as well uh, we're all for modernizing simplifying income tax services the challenge is is that what they mean Is this modernizing and simplifying income tax services for HMRC? Because sometimes I fear that's the angle, which doesn't mean it's modern or simplifying for you, the the employer, the operation of payroll, that simplification for them. And they want you to do it the way they want. And that's the fear. And the reality is from an Irene point of view, our goal is that it's for mutual benefit. So this is simplification for both. And I think there's an element of reviewing and thinking some of the simplification and modernization they've done, has it actually made it simple? So RTI has brought in a level of simplification, but actually it's brought in a level of complication and they're probably getting lots of people calling them. So the intention of this is sometimes to reduce calls and sometimes I think the choice and, and method of implementing is actually increased calls. So are they actually getting the result they want? And certainly some of the consultations seem to be um, a basis of uh, one size fits all. In other words, we all have to fit a size seven shoe. The problem is we haven't all got a size seven foot. And I think, but, but they can't potentially see it that way. But it's a reality we're not all the same there are differences so you go to a shoe shop you've usually got a range and i think there's an element of they need to have a range but going back to the digital by default type thing i mean great i i believe in these things nick it's just i'm not sure about some of the methods they're tackling it because i think they're one-sided um so yes i'd go for it but equally i go back again with what richard's saying there the digitally excluded, what does that mean? Uh, uh, Even in development of payroll software at times, I think sometimes we as suppliers or or payroll software will say, well, we'll get them to work it this way. And we've given them capabilities to do everything. The reality is that some people don't want to do it. They want you to do it. So they want someone else to do it. They don't want to hit themselves, no matter how simple it is. And you could say, well, we'll charge you 50 quid, you could do it for free. They'll say, here's the 50 quid, you do it.
0: I mean, to to rephrase a question that's been put into the box here, um, one solution would be if they want to reduce the amount of calls coming in, is actually just to improve the the answers and the guides in particular that they have on their website, then you wouldn't have to keep calling them. Um, which is a, an observation here from someone that's uh, that's watching the show. Um, and then I've got another comment here from Jeanette that says the HMRC are still changing new starter tax codes to BR or 0T when they shouldn't be. Uh, again, it's um, I guess it's, it's difficult if you try to make something simple, but then you get <laughs> these things happening on the blip side. It's, um, it's challenging. I guess you could say also, yeah. you know,
1: you you could use examples of smart coding as a prime example here. Yeah, you know, smart coding is great for HMRC because it simplifies the process for them. But if you have bonuses during the year, it can massively reduce the simplification on your end. So there will always be a two way, shall we say, gap, shall we say, in, in, in what simplification means.
2: Well, and I think there's an element of um, it, it's something that I'm sure all three of us repeatedly try and get across in our consultation meetings sometimes when a problem is identified the default answer seems to be we need to improve the education of the employer Uh, whereas actually the default answer should be we need to look at the process to see if it's broken Uh, and if we can improve the the broken process we could simplify it for the employer because if the employer is getting things wrong all the time that's usually because it's too hard to do
0: well, let's go into our third and final poll. Again, it still links to, to simplification, to be fair, because we're talking now about the, uh, the scrapping of um, paper P11Ds. Um, has this moved you towards payroll benefits? Uh, response options say, yes, we are moving towards payroll benefits. I'm not sure. Or no, we are keeping the traditional P11 option. Uh, still, we'll have 100 of you uh, joining us, which is fantastic. So please do, if you can, uh, put your response in here. It's much better to get a Full overview with 100 people would be a really good response. So again, uh, in regards to scrapping P11Ds, has this moved you towards payroll benefits? Yes, we're moving towards payroll benefits. I'm not sure yet, or no, we are keeping the traditional P11D option. While um, while we're waiting for those results to come in, there was an announcement I think that you uh, caught that I think came in only yesterday, or maybe even been today, Simon, in relation to uh, paternity pay being split or something along those lines. Wondered if um, because it's fresh news, I'm not sure how up to speed you are with that announcement, but. Maybe while waiting for those results to come in, you can um, bring us up
2: to speed. Oh, uh, yeah. So I could give you a little bit of information. So the Department of Business and Trade, DBT, used to be Bayes. They released their response to consultation. And I see uh, Matt has kindly pushed something out to CIPP as well, Sam, uh, probably yesterday or today, about uh, the proposals. So as a result of that, uh, because it was originally part of a consultation that happened in 2019, uh, there are some proposals and one of them, the main announcements are to give fathers and partners more choice and flexibility in re- how they take paternity leave. So the proposals are to introduce the ability for the two weeks to be split. The odds here, Nick, is I know that some employers do this already, but legally they shouldn't be. Uh, and the other is to, so that that is, you could take a week's paternity leave, go back to work, then take the second week later. At the moment, legally, maternity leave has to be taken in one block of one or two weeks. Uh, the other is to give uh, the father or the partner, because it's not always a father, the ability to take that leave in the first 12 months, whereas currently it's eight weeks. And so <coughs> there are other flexibilities and then you go into the neonatal and other proposals so information came out yesterday need to analyze it a bit more on what they're suggesting and see how it develops but interesting times for parental leave rights going forward
0: certainly i for one would be a huge advocate for being able to take it later i didn't wasn't able to take paternity leave for either of my children But if it was able to take it within a 12-month period i would have been able to take that benefit which was a bit of a shame but that's a, a personal case but that's my view Um, let's bring it back to uh, the results then then we'll jump into the next part of the show Uh, and Samantha perhaps I can ask you to comment on the results once they come in Uh, so just to those in audio only 46% said yes we're moving towards payroll benefits 27% said I'm not sure yet and another 27% said no we're keeping the traditional P11D option Samantha back to you
3: yeah so I think you know, 46%, they are moving towards them. I wonder whether they were already payrolling their benefits. Um, From the latter two options, I do get um, a feel that because you can't payroll all benefits, that will put people off. So, what payroll professionals don't want to do is have two um, administrative processes for one thing so you don't want to be payrolling benefits for the benefits you can payroll and then still having to do um, this traditional P11d reporting for your accommodation um, benefits and for any um for any beneficial loans that you provide as well so I do wonder whether for those that aren't doing it um yet or for those who aren't sure i wonder whether if all benefits could be payrolled whether that would sway their decision
0: interesting interesting well let's jump into the um the national minimum wage here we've got the name and shame list has been revealed and we know that some employers potentially are in denial certainly not a list that you'd want to be on um but what we also want to know is what can the employer do about it, and there is of course a premium webinar which is going to go into this in much more detail run by the s d works Academy that's taking place on friday July the fourteenth so again, if this is a subject area that you're very much keen to to know more about, I highly recommend you sign up for that um perhaps Simon because uh obviously that's being run by the uh, the s d works academy. I know your involvement in it uh, perhaps you can kick us off with uh, with this subject for us
2: yeah, sure and um... And, and certainly, I know um, I've forgotten the name of the guy. Is he called Gary from the, the current promote officer for National Minimum Wage is coming around trying to see organisations uh, about promoting National Minimum Wage. One of his strap lines is National Minimum Wage isn't about a rate. It's about a calculation. I think that's one of the lines he used. And there's a lot of truth in that. And I think the name and shame list that we've had 202 employers named, there are some big names there. Um, If you went to them before they had their inspection and said, do you think you've got a problem with minimum wage? They'd say no, but they've been found to have a problem. And I think it's because it's a complex area to understand. So I think generally employers are in denial. They do not believe because they pay their basic rate above minimum wage rate, but don't understand. And so within the notification from HMRC or, or the Department for Business and Trade, actually it's them that really published the list from the HMRC audits and these go back some years because audits are intrusive and long. Uh, Some of the reasons are because you're not really recording work time properly. You're not uh, uh, counting deductions for the benefit of the employer. So you don't realize that actually changing things in their construction doesn't necessarily solve the problem because if they're paying the employer, that reduces pay for minimum wage. Uh, and, And also, amounts uh, I think significant amount of apprentices, so there's a significant amount of apprentices being discovered to be underpaid. One of the reasons is because they're not really apprentices at all. so just because you call a job an apprentice or apprenticeship doesn't make it one, they actually do need apprenticeship agreements in place uh, and uh, th- so they're finding that we're kind of putting uh, if I put it periphery logic to the application of complex law and just because you call something something doesn't make it that way and so there is an element of being very very careful but uh something i've blogged on about a lot uh since the announcements uh it's surprising um how many employers who think they are compliant with national minimum wage law uh may find that actually they're not and they don't understand it
0: a lot of it's still maybe I'm, I'm incorrect in making assumptions, assumption but is it this a lot because there's still a lot of confusion about the national living wage and we're reading really that session we've obviously covered that a lot in the uh in in previous shows as well so I wonder if you can perhaps provide a little bit I know it's a big subject but a little bit of clarification about for those that I know there were recently you mentioned uh, I won't give names away but four big big employers came together and didn't realize perhaps any of them were were in contravention and That wasn't necessarily the case. So can you bring some of that to light?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, that relates to, yes, we've recently had the uh, Department for Business and Trade or the uh, Parliamentary Committee that deals with business and trade had the supermarket retailers in and uh, they asked them a direct question. Are they, and it's not national living wage, are they a living wage employer? And three of the four confirmed they were. Uh, But the reality is none of them are. Uh, So the Living Wage uh, Foundation, who accredit living wage employers, have confirmed that none of them have living wage accreditation, and that's the difficulty. But obviously they think they do, uh, so there is confusion even there. So what does it mean to be a living wage uh, employer? It means you're conforming and accredited by the Living Wage Foundation. And they also do living hours and living pension. They're two other schemes because they're concerned about zero hours workers. Uh, so to claim that you have something they credit is uh, not quite right, uh, but they did state that to the Parliamentary Committee that they are living wage employers.
0: And if 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 someone finds themselves on the name and shame list, uh, Sam and and or Richard, um, what can employers do about it? Is, is what's what's the protocol? What what do they need to what do they need to think about? Oh, Sam, I'll start with you. Oh, that sorry, so on. Sam, so you on want on to go no, well,
1: you was, uh, I, on. go on.
3: Richard, no, you I think
1: The issue is it's not something that just happens. Um, there's usually plenty of opportunity for the employer to sort it out, um, and you know, in a lot of cases, it's substantial areas um and i think this is goes back to where simon was people believe that they are paying the right amount of money but where the education falls down is understanding the nuance of especially deductions from pay uh, but in the case of at least two of the largest ones is what you're requiring the staff to do purchase have for the fulfillment of the role um and I guess the the secondary on that is understanding as well, even though it's things are optional. um, It's the whole point of if they weren't doing the job, would they need them? Um, And we can go back to another case. Um, It was Augustine against Data Cars Limited, um, where basically the guy had the option of a uniform. The guy had an option of hiring a car. He chose to do so they deducted it from his pay and took him below national minimum wage their argument was well he didn't need either but the principle was is would he have bought the uniform or would he have needed the car we look at the recent cases in the naming and shaming you know where employers request staff to wear for instance black trousers or i will use a smart presentable shoes line and where the staff buy them themselves again would they have bought them or would they have needed that purchase if they weren't doing the job so there is all this neon stereo that is where i guess the big errors occur very few is it's because you're not paying the right sum of money it's are you deducting the correct amounts or b are you actually paying your staff for working time and i think these are the key aspects the employers do ignore so it's just my silly watch um and I guess you know, if there is a positive about naming and shaming, it's giving loads of scenarios to employers to actually say, Well, hang on a minute, we do something like that. There is, I think, a really good level of education that possibly comes out of the naming and shaming as a, a sort of secondary status from it. You know, somebody may say, Oh crap, we've got our people in black trousers and they've gone out and bought them. Looking at this, this employer's been in trouble for it. So, you know, it gives I guess more employers the opportunity to actually review what they're doing, so I think it's a good thing. Yeah, I think it's a good Way thing. people on the on,
0: on the breadline, you know, national wage is important yeah. and actually impacts. If you get name and shame, it can impact your ability to attract and retain your talent. And I know, you know, that's expensive. It's one of the biggest challenges for HR leaders at the minute is, is trying to attract and retain good talent. And if you're on that list, it's probably not somewhere that's going to help your cause if you're trying to get good talent into the door. But ultimately, if people are on, you know, really are, do need that money and they're being deducted or, or below that threshold. And I think it's absolutely right that we, we highlight that because these are people's lives that have been impacted. Uh, sorry, Sam, I know you're about to jump in and I didn't need to cut you off.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the working time, I think, will catch a lot of people out. And there's been a lot of focus in social media uh, circles this past week. The, the question was the example of the individual who's been told off for not being at work earlier than their seven o'clock start time because they've got to get ready and so they're 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 paid from the point they can commence doing productive time Well, as far as national minimum wage is concerned they're employed and should be paid from the point they start preparing yeah and and there's an element of and then the argument kind of comes in well everybody else comes in 15 minutes early and they're not paid for it because they're doing this and that and getting ready and at their desk ready to work or waiting for the shop to open. And there's an amount of, yeah, they people might accept that, that doesn't make it right. And actually the one that's there on the dot is on time. Yeah, but it goes further because it's then, if they're then uh, going to uh, penalize or affect the one that is on time uh, and HMRC inspectors come in, uh, they may say, well, actually you're okay with them. But all these other people, they're there at work 15 minutes early and you haven't paid them. They'll enforce the payment to everybody else.
3: Anything you you'd like to add to that, that that's risk. Um, No, I think it's all been covered. You know, there was a couple of names on that, um, on, the, um, on the naming sure. and shaming list that were done so by voluntary disclosure. And like Richard pointed out, employers can take learning from reviewing why other employers have essentially fallen foul of the regulations um you know going back to the point what can the employer do about it once they're on the list not a lot other than pay the pay the penalties and you know pay the employees back but ultimately learn from mistakes amend your processes upskill your staff and maybe have this as a regular upskilling session you know, just along the panel, you can come to any of our employers and we can help upskill on national minimum wage compliance. Um But yeah, huge area. Employers definitely don't want to find themselves on that list. Um, and it's an education point. It's a really, really complex area to wrap your head around. Um, there's so many nuances. So just keep your eye on it.
0: And actually, it's a much, much smaller investment to get experts in to help you at this stage than to pay the price of being listed later and then having to pay the fines and go with it. I just wanted
1: to go on the back of Sam as well. It's all about your own audit. The way you find out that it's wrong is by your own ability. Um, Part of our update this year has been going through the process that an employer needs to consider. So, understanding what hours have genuinely been worked in the pay reference period? What am I actually paying them for that pay reference period? And therefore understanding, again, as Sam said, the nuance within that audit process requirement. Uh, you know, you, if, if you're not on, on top of that, then you, with all due respect, you are your own worst enemy in this process.
0: Quick, quick comment, this has come in from Anne. It said, did I just hear that some were named on the name and shaming list who had done a voluntary disclosure to HMRC?
3: Yeah. So a couple of those employers had made that voluntary disclosure, but they're still they would still appear on that list. Okay. Well, let's,
0: let's go to our last subject. I'm conscious of time and we missed it last time and I don't want to miss it again. Um, It's talking about how or oh, well actually bridging the gap between departments. Interestingly I was thinking about this um, when we all did our introductions and all of us talked about how we are all in the reward 300 uh, which isn't known as the payroll 300 but I think it gives a, an interesting insight into how we are starting to blend some of the things that we're doing. Um, we are seeing certainly from a recruitment perspective in my perspective an awful lot of bridging gaps between HR, payroll, pensions, finance uh, and rewards that in as a separate discipline as well. Uh, where it gets more confusing now where does one stop and the other begin? Uh, we talked a lot about payrolling benefits say as an example. Some are, some aren't, and, and there's some changes there as well. Uh, we are going digital, which makes things easier to blend, of course. Um, and there are some challenges of shared responsibility, particularly when we have less defined singular touch points. Um, Simon, we didn't get to this uh, last month. I wonder if you can kick us off with your view.
2: Uh, yeah, We've discussed a little bit of this yesterday as well, Nick, uh, just between us. But uh, and interesting to hear what Sam's view is, but I think. Uh, there has been a sort of review view as uh, payroll is undervalued. That's the historic position. Uh, I've even been to the CIPP conferences where they've done the sort of the two Ronnie's sketch, et cetera, of, um, you know, upper class, middle class, lower class, and, and where payroll fits. And we've had an opportunity over these past two or three years to be much more focused and critical to a business because of the reactive way we've had to be dealing with COVID and coronavirus job retention scheme and everything else, SSP reclaims, blah, blah, blah. And so we've been more in the forefront and we have the ability to be because actually we are primary data holders, keepers for helping aid planning business implication of, uh, of reward choice. But there's an element of, we use that word reward, but the view is, do we elevate payroll by changing its name or do we elevate payroll? And so personally, I mean, I don't mind it, but uh, is it something else or are we proud to be payroll professionals and will elevate us as payroll because actually we're at the top?
0: Well, actually for, for me, the, the, the key change in what I've seen from a recruitment perspective, which I think is really interesting, you highlighted some really important things, particularly the pandemic, Furlough really thrusting the payroll into the limelight and raising the profile. But actually, I think the thing that's driving the profile increase now is, number one, people spotting, companies spotting an opportunity uh, in the world of payroll because data is now so much more important to to driving strategic decision making at any level. And payroll has access to so much data that previously we didn't really have the technologies or the know-how or the, the um, I guess, the technical tools to really make use of that data in the way that we now can. I think spotting that value has really raised the profile of payroll and a lot of them, technological investments, you know, whether it's been created in Silicon Valley or Austin or wherever it might be now, a lot of companies coming in knowing that payroll people have access to all this data. How can we leverage it to improve performance and actually payroll are the key holders to that? So I think that's had a massive impact from my perspective in the way that that's seen the payroll profession really rise up because there's something, hold on, they're the gatekeepers to this. What can we get our payroll managers, our payroll leaders to do with that data that can really help us improve the way we manage our employees? Whether that's looking at talent and retention statistics, absence management, regional pay gaps, whatever it is, there's loads of things you can look at. Um, Ultimately, payroll are the the gatekeepers and and the key holders to some some really powerful data. That's something that I'm seeing. I'd love to get your view, Sam, from the CIPP side.
3: Yeah, I think, um, you know, those four kind of broad department headings that we've got listed there, you know, payroll wouldn't be able to function without those other departments. But equally, those other departments wouldn't be able to do their job without payroll. So then there does need to be, you know, a bridge between those gaps. Um, we've definitely seen, you know, a, a, an increase in payrolls kind of strategic value within businesses. Unfortunately, since everyone really realized that they needed us throughout the pandemic. So when we're all deemed to be key workers, because if we weren't sat there calculating the job retention scheme and paying people, people would not have been paid. It really is quite that simple. Um, you know, going back to the brand change, does payroll need to be rebranded or do employees just need to be um, kind of upskilled as to how much payroll do you know it's a bit of a mimic that you know payroll you push a button once a month yeah we do and automation and technology is amazing so yes we can push a button once a month and that deals with your processes and your reports that need to be sent to HR to pensions to finance to get the backs gone but what about all the other things that we do the level of empathy you need when someone calls you up who's in a really tragic position and they want their pay in. they want that kind of reassurance that payroll will be there and they will still get their you know wages paid on payday and um, the question where does one stop and the other begin that's a really difficult question um, and i think really everyone's interpretation will be different based on previous experience, the company that you work in. You know, I've worked within operational payroll roles where I've sat under HR. I've also sat in roles where I sit under finance. But should payroll be sat on its own? Should it just be completely separate from HR or finance? There's arguments either way. Um, And I'm now kicking myself that we haven't asked a poll question around this because it would be really, really valuable. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, to see what the audience thinks on this one as well, mainly where they sit within an organisation.
0: I'm going to lead this into a question for Richard in just a moment. But I want to just comment on something you've mentioned there, which is, you know, people, you know, we talk about the button, talk about um, the idea of automation, making payroll jobs simpler, right, and taking the manual tasks out. Now, I don't know about you on the panel. I still don't know about the 91 people that are still or 95 people are still with us. But from my perspective, I have never seen people working in payroll work more like it hasn't made your jobs any less busy. It just means you can do more things with the data and the, and, and the, and the people. It's allowed you to get involved in having an impact on financial wellness, on the employee experience in loads of loads of other more holistic and actually probably more employee valuable processes, that means you're not done in the data. I think what's really interesting is those that don't have an understanding of payroll think that automation has just made it easy, so that all you do now is sit at the back office, twiddle your thumbs until the end of the month. Payroll people now have been arguably more burnt out than I've ever seen them before, right? There's a, it's a real issue in the industry with burnout and, and people working too many hours, and, and we know that a lot of companies are struggling to find talent for those reasons. People are leaving the industry because it's been too hard. Um, yeah. So actually, automation is great, and and tech has been fantastic for evolving the profession. But I think for those certainly in it, and I'm sure those on the show today will will will, will agree. I would like to think, in terms of the experience I've had speaking to payroll professionals, is they're working harder than ever. I know, you have you done a lot of work on that financial wellness piece and understanding you know people's involvement in in other areas? So, what what's your your view on this? In relation to the
1: question of the gap, I think being slightly controversial, is it payroll that needs to rebrand? or is it a company that needs to reconsider and restructure correctly is my first statement, because, you know, if you look at somebody like myself or Sam or Simon, or, you know, we've been in the industry for about 10 years each, I'd say, obviously because we're all in our early (laughs) thirties. I was looking more at Simon there, obviously. Um, (laughs) The job payroll do is significantly different to what payroll did, you know, way way back when i was doing payrolls it was far more gross than that with some benefits where now payroll is so integrated into so many different aspects of the whole people reward benefits uh, and also wellness areas actually is it the ignorance of a company of considering payroll as the people that push the button um, rather than the company that should be saying well actually The payroll element or the people element or the information we have within that payroll is integral to other parts of our company. So I'm going to flip it on its head and take away the rebrand and actually say payroll should be louder. Payroll should be telling its business what it has, what it can do, what parts it plays, and the company should be reviewing what it does. Does that make sense? It does make sense.
0: Yeah, and interesting. We we're getting some commentary on this as well. Let me read out some of the comments that have come in while we've been chatting away. One is a question related to previous uh, slides. So I'll come back to that in just a moment, Emir, so I haven't forgotten that. Um, the one someone said here, what's um, uh, what are people's experience of pay data being provided to other departments? For example, information for personal tax returns, P11Ds, audits, et cetera. And, um, you know, I'll. There's obviously an issue there that, that that's raised that question. if uh, one has said, I believe all four are intertwined. I uh, probably I think we all probably agree in that. And in, in some way, it's very hard to 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 completely separate them. Uh, but interestingly, Tracy says, I've been a payroll manager in a company for the last six years, but even now, employees still go to HR first with a payroll question. For me, that relates to what you were there saying, Richard. We've got to shout a little bit louder and be really I'm not saying this will solve Tracy's particular problem, but I think generally, you know, educating the internally the businesses of what the role that the roles payroll professionals can play and the, the yeah, information I think they
1: just, just going back on that we you mentioned about financial wellness the number of businesses that are currently going through for instance the review of pay on demand the whole aspect of financial wellness um, and the support and education and the number of companies that we hear that don't even incorporate payroll in it Until they get to the point where they need the deduction taken from pay. And I think that's just absolutely crazy, personally.
0: Interesting. Simon, any additional commentary from what you've just heard or from those comments made?
2: Yeah, the only other comment I make, I mean, uh, we all knew uh, Maria at McDonald's is now retired. Uh, When the Olympics came along, she invited herself to the uh, McDonald's strategic planning meetings for what they were going to do because she could see it as a critical item in relation to paying their staff they didn't in their planning and the only comment I'm saying and I'm agreeing with the others we've tended to be operating as independent departments within businesses and which is great but there are interdependencies and increasingly the topics we've talked about even today payrolling gender pay gap if I call it holiday pay They're not payroll alone questions. They are HR, payroll, finance, and business questions. And then you've got your pensions and pension professionals if we include that aspect. We have interdependencies with each other and we need to be communicating and working together. And I think that's probably the point that was made elsewhere. Whereas before, the only interaction you probably had between those departments was a piece of paper.
0: Well, interesting. It's been many times that you've said, Simon, with a response for various questions. Well, I can give you the answer, but it kind of depends on what your contract of employment says. And that's a really interesting example. We're often answering a payroll related question. but Of course, it relates to a contract of employment, which you would argue sits with with HR. And it gives an example of where they are intertwined. We often quote case law. And that's an example of where it intertwines with legal often, where we need to see what precedents have been set. We have Andy, who's usually a, a panel member who could make it today who talks you know, about pensions and the inter- interconnectedness there between payroll and pensions, which we know is clear. Um, so I think you know, I echo what you've just, just mentioned, mentioned there as well. I think it's absolutely, absolutely right. I know, Sam, you were, you were nodding your head as well.
3: Yeah, I just think um, I really feel for Tracy in her role, the question that came in, you know, people go to HR and not straight to payroll. Um, this is where, you know, we've got National Payroll Week coming up in September. All payroll professionals, that is a week where you can shout from the rooftops about the importance of your role. If you work in an organisation where you're fed up of, you know, your all your managers and your team leaders missing payroll cut off, put a half an hour session in an upskilling session, put it on Teams, put it on Zoom. If people can't make it, record it, allow them to watch it back and shout about the importance of payroll and why you should hear us out and why you should come to us first if you go into HR and they then need to ping an email on and blah 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 it takes more time just come straight to us so national payroll week this year is running the first week of September so it runs from the 4th to the 8th um you know alongside the payroll center the CIPP you know are advocates for that week you can register your interest um, now. You can go on to the, um, the CIPP website, go on to our events. You can register to get a downloadable pack. And in there, you'll get bunting that you can print off and pin up around the office. You'll get posters to pin up on the back of toilet doors. You know, let's really make a noise um, and elevate the profession and let people know how important we really are.
1: Super. There's no such, thing as, is there such thing as HR week. It's just payroll. That doesn't need to be. (laughs) It's true. I think also on the back of what Sam was saying when it comes to that week is people are love a bit of legacy. Come and come to the payroll department. Come and see what we do. But what's the world today? The world today, they want to see films. They want blogs. They want, you know, actually embrace how people want to experience payroll week. I think that's really key as well. You know, do some videos, make a film, make a song, Nick.
0: Well, so exactly. Yeah, my whole go career. Good stuff. But I'm uh, on, on a serious note as well, though, this interconnectedness. Sometimes <laughs> we don't see things shifting until until suddenly we things suddenly exist and we don't know where they happened. Uh, from my perspective, obviously, I'm, I'm recruiting different positions in the world of payroll, and we've seen titles change significantly. You know, we are that for those maybe not seeing it because you're not looking for it. When you're immersed in the world of recruitment, you see this in a, in a slightly different view. But the titles we're recruiting for now are very, very different to what they were. You know, even pre-pandemic, so only a few years ago, we've got payroll strategic partners. I'm working on a role at the minute that's a global payroll program director. You know, there, there are a lot of new titles, new positions coming into the into the market, which which does kind of show the gap is 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 shortening because a lot of them are hybrid type positions now that do involve responsibilities that are immersed in pensions, finance, HR, IT in particular as well, and tech. Now, you know, we're dealing with some payroll engineering positions which are very much immersed in in software and 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 um, coding and and, and programmatic languages so I think that's quite exciting and I think we'll look back and go actually we didn't really see it coming but suddenly all these people exist and they're they're hybrid and they're they're working at a hopefully at a high level with 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 more more onus put on the profession and what it's doing but to echo what Sam said I think it's a great way to finish the show I've got one question I'm going to ask the team because it's been here for a while it relates to a previous slide however national pro week should absolutely be celebrated so if you haven't got your packs and don't know more about it do go to the CIPP website and find out more and do get involved. We'll be doing what we can here at PQT as well, and I know that everyone on the panel will be celebrating it in style. So it's your opportunity to really shout from the rooftops about how great this profession is, and really also celebrate the teams that support you. So um, all those people underneath as well that worked tirelessly to get the payrolls out. This is their opportunity to shine as well. So do go to CLP to get that information. Right, to come back to that question: Does anyone find education a challenge for employers around payrolling benefits?
2: Simon, if we're talking about employees. I don't know, Uh, uh, education. All right, let's go back to getting, I think the challenge with most people I've seen that have gone ahead with payrolling is they've not planned it because it's a view of thinking it's the same as P11D just in a different way. It's similar, but it's not the same. So there is an element of thinking you do need education to understand what the difference is and it is subtly different. P11D is about retrospective, dealing with a history that's happened. Payrolling isn't. It's a prediction of the future, which if things change, you have to adjust. And so it's understanding that. So if that's relating to the question, uh, yes. Now, is it an element of do the employees need education? I think that's an easier exercise because their tax is right immediately. but. can senior management understand it um can they just sometimes be a bit indifferent and do they see it as a problem anyway i don't know so i've sort of tackled three angles there uh thinking what's the question really asking but from a payroll point of view and decision point we did we did get loads of people say oh the business has decided to payroll everything um right we'll implement that next month And the first question uh, we'll kind of ask them because we're there to help and we implement loads of payrolling. So implement most. The first question we ask is, have you registered? And they look at us as if we're mad. And it's sort of if you haven't registered before the 5th of April, you can't. Uh, But equally, there's an element of when it comes to, oh, we'll come back to you next year then and do it for next year. When they come back to us next year, the same question is, have you registered? Oh, well, you said that last time. So now we're here a year later. But have you registered? If you haven't registered, you can't do it. You've got to waste another <laughs> I'm year. Gonna,
0: I'm going to hold that thought then. So we're at the end of the show. But while we're on the focus of have you registered, a quick reminder for some action points for everyone that's still with us, all 90 of you or more. Remember to go to the CRPP and get your information on National Payroll Week. Don't forget to do that. Do remember to sign up for the premium webinar we talked about earlier, which has being held by Works on the 14th of July. You can find out more at sdworks.co.uk. Um, and also please do remember to register for our next show which is on the 28th of July again you can access that sdworks.co.uk forward slash pqt and we're not running a show in August so this is your last chance before the summer to really get up to speed with everything so do do register even if you can't make the show you'll still get a copy of the audio and the slides afterwards and you'll get a survey after this show so let us know what we want to talk about in that episode. Just leaves me to say one final thank you to all of you, our audience, for joining us today and to our wonderful panel, Simon Parsons, Sam Sullivan, and Richard George. And I wish you all a wonderful weekend. Thank you very much. That's all for this episode of The Payroll Podcast. I hope you enjoyed our discussion today and gained valuable insights and inspiration to advance your payroll career or your payroll operation. If you haven't already, please, please do subscribe to the show so you never miss a future episode. And if you found this podcast helpful, please take a moment to leave us a little review on your preferred podcast platform. It's your feedback that really helps me to improve the show and, of course, attract new listeners so we can continue to raise the profile of the payroll industry for all. Finally, if you know anyone who could benefit from this Payroll Podcast, please do share it with them. Let's spread the word and build a vibrant community of payroll professionals worldwide. Thank you, of course, for listening. My name is Nick Day. Please do look me up on LinkedIn and send me a connection request. In the meantime, I look forward to being with you again on the next episode of the Payroll Podcast real soon.